Genesis 8, verse 13 is on page 6 of your Pew Bible. If you don't have your own Bible with you, which is always good, I encourage you to use the Pew Bible this morning. A uh, number of visitors here this morning, so just to kind of let you know, St. Paul Lutheran Church is a Lutheran church in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but their preacher's a little weird. And he has forced them into having Bible study during the sermon time, uh, and uh, that's what we do here. So this is our Bible study. This is, this is the sermon as well. We're going to look at the Genesis text. Um, there'll be moments where I preach, there'll be moments when I say look at the text. There's also uh, three by five blank note cards in the pew in front of you and pens. So if you like to take notes, uh, I encourage that. When you write something down that you hear, you hear it three times. It goes in your ears, goes through your brain, goes out your muscles, through your fingers, onto the page. You see it and read it as that's happening. It goes into your brain again, right? So writing something down creates a channel of memory in your head. It's a wonderful tool uh, to put to use, and we try to do that here at St. Paul. Okay, so first, uh, Genesis 8, 13 is where we are starting. Secondly, if you don't get anything else today, be a lot of stuff, okay? If you don't take anything else home, I want you to catch the rainbow. And I want you to see the fire of God in the rainbow. I want you to believe that the rainbow is your sign, your symbol, and that it is God's sign for you of his alliance with your neighborhood. When you see a rainbow in your neighborhood, God sent it to remind you as a Christian that he is for you. There. Now, now I had to learn that lesson the hard way this week when I saw a rainbow inside a Walmart that I didn't expect. Now, have you seen it? It's just over here. Now, Walmart hasn't jumped on the bandwagon like some other companies. Target. Uh, he's not quite, they're not quite as far out. What I saw was not, I don't think, professionally done. I don't think it was from corporate. It was just local, but it was all over. And at first, I did what I always do, which is I thought, oh, that's so sad. But I'm never going to do that again. And I want you to join me. Because the rainbow's not sad. The rainbow is the greatest source of joy in nature. Put there by Jesus for you to have joy in it. Now, I know it's hard to have joy in it when someone takes something as beautiful as that and uses it as a veil for their licentiousness, or perhaps even for their pedophilia. Yeah, uh, That's pretty gross, right? And so it's hard to feel good about that use of the rainbow. And I'm going to tell you right now, fighting back by letting them have the rainbow is not fighting back. So I'm going to tell you right now what I'm going to do next time I see a rainbow anywhere in the sky. Hold on, here it is. There's one right there, I saw it, now I have to do it. Alleluia, as Jesus Christ lives. Can you imagine, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm this crazy yet, but I'm gonna tell the story the craziest way possible. I, I kinda wanna do this, but I'm still too nervous of a person. So I walk into Walmart, and I walk by, and I look up, and I see this panoply of rainbows everywhere, and I go, Alleluia, as Jesus Christ lives! And I just go shopping after that. I'm not kidding. I'm going to do it. Not that loud. I'm going to do it every time I see a rainbow. I'm going to say, Hallelujah, as Jesus Christ lives. I invite you to do the same. Do it loud enough for you to hear it. And don't care what anybody says. Ignore them. That's the whole point. It's your rainbow. And so you're singing praise to God because you saw it, and he will hear. 
I'm going to come back and kind of close with this, but that is my invitation to you. Hallelujah, as Jesus Christ lives. Um, Genesis 6, 13. We kind of touched on this verse last, last week. In the 601st year of the month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Now, you got that. It's been 100 years now, and uh, since Noah received the vision, right, uh, Shem is going to be 98, I think, at this point, and his brother's younger. Um, they're all getting off the ark, and the face of the ground is dry. We could, we could spend a lot of time on a lot of things in here, like the word ground and so forth, but uh, just moving forward. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Um, I think First Peter will tell you that's eight persons in all. Uh, it's not that hard to do the counting, uh, but eight, eight people left on the whole planet. Can humanity survive? That's the story still right at this moment, yeah? Uh, remember how last week we saw how happy they were that there's an olive branch? Do you remember why? It's not just because it's good food. It's fuel, it's light, right? They, they gotta rebuild everything now. I wonder what they did first. I, well, I, I know Noah planted a vineyard is what he did first, but uh, first, before that, bring out, verse 17, with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. All right, there we can build on some of what we've had the past few weeks on Hebrew zoology, or maybe we would call it in, in, in English more taxonomy. Um, taxonomy is the study of the animal's nature. Zoology is kind of a broader field than that. And we've been talking about the way that Moses is building a, a zoology, a, a tree of animal language for categories throughout the story. And it starts just with the idea of the hayah, uh, the, the living things, uh, anything that has the breath of life in it, right? Uh, it, why are they called animals? And what's the, the connection between the word animal and, say, the movie Snow White and, and animation, right? The idea here is just that there's a movement that's going on, whereas the plant... Right? It doesn't have that spirit the same way. So that's the way the Hebrew talks about animals, and it's been breaking them down into categories. And we see some of those categories then here in this verse as they're building on each other. Uh, you see birds and animals. Notice the distinction. Birds are living things in Hebrew thought, and yet here it's implying that there's more than just the birds. The birds are different than the other animals, and that's, that's also the way the language is used. So Hebrew's tough in this way. The same word can mean two different things. Or, here's a good example. A pig and a wild boar are not related at all in Hebrew thought, even though they kind of look the same. And if you dig them up on the inside, you can get bacon, right? Like, they're not the same thing. Why? Well, because one lives in the forest and one is domesticated. And that's far more important for what you're going to talk about than what they look like on the inside, unless, I guess, if you're after bacon, it's good enough, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, the Jews weren't after bacon. We'll, we'll leave it at that there. Uh, so, uh, animals was the first one. Birds, okay? And then we have this every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I've always thought until I studied it the last few weeks that that was just the insects. 
And it makes sense for insects, and insects are creeping things, and, and they're creepy too, right? And totally. Um, but it also means, say, mice or lizards. So really the early categories are, are this simple. There's stuff that breathes, and in the stuff that breathes, there's, there's flying breathing stuff, and then there's big breathing stuff, and then there's little breathing stuff. That's more or less what it just said. They all go after that. <laughs> and the flying breathing stuff, the little breathing stuff, and the big breathing stuff. Um, that's the taxonomy so far. And then they're all supposed to do what the little breathing stuff does in its name. That word swarm there is closely connected to the creeping thing's way of life. And if you imagine what a swarm is, right, it's a large number of something going somewhere. Well, God is bringing them out so that they might do that in the earth now, all of us. The animals, the birds, and the other animals, right? Um, they are to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That's the end of the verse. Two words that I think all of us kind of know what they mean, right? Like it's not one of those verses like sanctification where you have to have a degree to know what it means. Uh, fruitfulness, multiplication, you get that in grade school, um, mostly. Uh, and yet they're, they're really powerful words. And particularly, uh, that word fruit there is connected uh, to the word, say, eating, and the production of what is valuable for anything, right? So we don't just talk about, say, the fruit of bacon from a pig, or the fruit of the apple from the tree. We talk about the fruit of your hands, right? And the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So this is a massive idea about God bringing forth more good of what, out of what he already has. Another way to think about fruitfulness is the distinction between a seed, a flower, and the fruit. They're all organically interrelated, and yet what is it? It's what God has brought forth, good unto more good unto more good. So now out of the fruit of the seed in the flower that becomes the apple that falls to the ground, there's another seed. So out of fruitfulness comes multiplication. Uh, two times two, three times three, four times four. Multiplication is not addition. It's not by small steps. It's exponential. And I think as we go forward here, I'm going to say this now. It's a little early, but it's really important. Uh, because there's, there's been movements in, in the church in the last 60 years dealing with how do we respond that people don't like marriage anymore? Lots of different movements in that. How do we deal with the fact that no one wants to have kids anymore? That young women don't even want to get married. They, they, they would rather just go have a career and never get married. Twelve-year-olds will say this now. That's, that's like very unnatural. It really is, right? Um, uh, how, do we, how do we face this reality? Um, pardon me as I collect that thought for a second. That we have come to believe that the multiplication of mankind is bad. We actually think that, right? And then there are Christians who are like, well, therefore, you have to have kids. Because God says it's good, so you better have kids. Now, one thing, St. Paul, I hope we never do is become legalistic. What does legalistic mean? It means that you look at something God promises and you say it's something you have to do. That's legalism. You turn the gift of God into your work. And everything about be fruitful and multiply is not a work. It's not a commandment. It's not do this or else. It's here I'm going to give you something. Fruit and more of it. Yeah. And he does this here not only to Noah and his family and humanity, but to all nature. There'll be more of that as we go, but it, it starts there, right? Verse 18. 
So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, the same three sets of animals there. Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. I think I dug on that word family, and it is, it's like the word category, category. And we're going to see that concept of a category come up in a moment, so I'll leave that uh, for when it comes up with clean and unclean animals. But uh, 9 goes on. Here's what we heard read earlier. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Notice it's not God commanded his sons. It is he blessed. He blessed. That word, it just means that he spoke and it was good. Nothing more than he's giving it. And scooting ahead a little bit, the rainbow is the sign of this. What does this blessing of fruitfulness and multiplication mean? It really is the promise on which the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is based. The fruitfulness and multiplication of creatures on the earth is why we know we will always have food according to God's design. And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it is because we believe, according to the covenant of Noah, that with rare exception, people don't starve. There are exceptions. There are seasons. There are famines. There is need for mercy and care. But with rare exception, people don't starve. God provides. God provides. Right? And it's, it's right here in this covenant. Yeah? Um, what, is God, what does Noah do next? So, I mean, would you do this? You just spent 100 years with three other guys cutting down trees to build a boat as big as a football stadium. And you put on that boat two of everything that's not clean and seven of everything that's clean, and you put them on the boat, and then the whole world dies in catastrophe, and you get out, and you've only got seven of each of this and two of each of that, and so you take one of each of the seven that you have and you kill them in a fire. See, that's not planning. That's not strategic thinking. That's not how you grow your flock. It's the first thing he does. Uh, here we go, nine, uh, two. Oh, I skipped it, though. Where'd it go? Uh, there it is. We're not in nine. We're in, we're in 820. That's what happened. My eye dropped down. Pardon me on that. We're in 820. Next thing that happens, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That took a while, I imagine. Might have been kind of gross. No, my kids don't like you know making hamburger meat squishy. I know, ew, it's gross. Right? This was a lot more than that. It says verse twenty-one when Jesus, remember Jesus is Lord. When Jesus smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And Noah didn't earn that by his work of sacrifice. He didn't earn that. But it is a result of his sacrifice. It comes from it. Noah says... Basically, I only got seven left. They need to survive. They're the ones we're going to be supposed to eat. Huh? But I'm going to kill one before you, God, in order to acknowledge that you're the one who brought these seven to me in the first place. And that nothing can stop you from giving me more if you want to. 
I will acknowledge your sovereignty over the entire thing by taking this and actually, truly wasting it. A sacrifice is a waste on purpose in the acknowledge that there's nothing you have you didn't receive from God. He's going to give you more. So along with sacrificing a little, we tend to just put a little money in the plate, right? Uh, our tithes and our offerings. Along with sacrificing a little, um, looking uh, toward how to believe that God's going to provide for you. Right? And I don't mean gearing up your heart as if this is some emotional thing you're going to do. I just mean writing it down so you remember it. Like, read it again. Write to yourself, God will remember you. God has saved you. God is with you. Read it. It's true. Right? Uh, carry that kind of power with you wherever you go. Um, uh, knowing again uh, that whatever you sacrifice to God uh, will not be lost in this age. And it's not about earning justification. You're justified. You're sanctified. You're holy. It's about realizing, oh, it's just dust. And I can make a public show of the dust. Or I can even use the dust for something else that might be good, not for me, but for somebody else. So that's the difference between, say, a tithe and an offering, really, right? The offering is really trying to press it out into the good of others a bit. Um, one other thing to just keep in mind, uh, that prayer is a sacrifice. And praise is a sacrifice. Anybody know in the depths of their heart right away what it's a sacrifice of? Time. I don't have time today to spend 20 minutes reading a psalm out loud. I got too much to do. No time for sacrifice. Those days come. Those days come. But let me suggest that a sacrifice of praise in the morning is well worth your time. Yeah? Uh, all right. So I, I skipped ahead to uh, 9 verse 1, and so we'll continue on from 9 2. Again, apologies for that. Uh, the fear of you, a big shift here now. The animals don't like us. It says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Now, this is, this is important. You might have some like really snarky atheist come along and say um, that uh, we aren't really able to, to eat everything. And that also um, that there are animals that aren't afraid of us, that we've trained, we've domesticated. Well, that word for domestic animal, that's that large animal word. That's not listed here. This is just the wild animal word. So that's just kind of a caveat to the cynic out there. Um, but uh, what is clear here uh, is that coming off of the ark, there is a change in the relationship between man and the animals. Did you ever wonder how he got them all on the ark? You know, and I've heard people, oh, it was probably a miracle. They all came on their own from far away. Yeah, they might have, but you know what? It probably wasn't weird either because they weren't afraid of him. And you know why they weren't afraid of them? It's going to come in the text in a moment, but I'll give you the heads up. It's because we didn't eat them back then. Before the flood, we didn't kill animals. At least not for food. I don't know what the wickedness of man was great, right? He's, he's corrupted from youth. He's killing each other for sure. There's the great ones of the Nephilim and all this stuff. Um, but, but were they eating animals? No, it doesn't sound like it. And I don't know. Were animals poisonous? Did God change man's stomach? I, I don't know. But that, that is what's coming now in a moment. He's going to let us eat animals, and the result is now the animals... They run away. Um, we're blessed in our home to have a couple of Chinese dwarf hamsters. They look like little mice, and they will sit on your shoulder. My kids are, talk to my kids. They'll explain it. But they're, they're so domesticated. 
they're generally not afraid. And I, I want to make it again very clear that that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about how you will never be able to domesticate an animal. It's talking about the changed relationship between man and beast. And while we have a promise in the sky that food's going to be provided for everybody, the food that's going to be provided for us is now going to run away. <laughs> and we've got to catch it. And we're given to do that. That's actually what it says. Go hunt. Go hunt. Not for sport. For food. And it, can you imagine? I, there's ways to look at this. You know, in the Garden of Eden, did an apple look like an apple? Do you know that 150 years ago, an apple didn't look like an apple the way you think it does? Like it was much smaller and far more tart, less sugar content. We bred them for production. You know? And so what was an apple in the Garden of Eden? I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure an apple after the fall was a crab apple. Okay? And that that's what you had until the flood, and that that's what you lived on. Crab apples and the carrots you've grown, not the ones you buy at the store. You ever try to grow a carrot? You ever try? Nobody? I mean, I get bad carrots. Little tiny things. You know, so, so living on plants, while possible, before the flood, was not probably easy. And there's a miracle going on here in where these animals that are going to be declared clean, the rumens, the cows, the sheep, and all this stuff, um, they're, they're easier to grow than a field of wheat, honestly. It really is easier to have a cow than to make plants grow in order to eat it and survive. We don't believe that because we live in a society trying to survive on grains and good, bad, argue about it, whatever. But the point here again is something miraculous is taking place in God's giving us an easier path to survival. Something we forget about as Americans, we don't think about survival very much. I think about how I feel, what I want, right? But survival, not on my checklist usually. But for them, it's survival, right? And in a world of survival, God is showing them, I've got your back. I'll even change the way the whole thing works so you have food. Take that promissory note from God back then as him with you now. The same God is your God now. He has the same love for you now. He sees the same dignity in you now. He desires to provide for you now because he's chosen you. Washed you with his word. Yeah. All right, so the animals are going to run away. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I give, uh, I looked up, I'm sorry. I gave you, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And that's a changed topic, so let's just stop there for a moment. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on, on blood. The New Testament does take this up a little bit. Um, I do not believe that when the New Testament forbids blood in Acts 15, it's referring to eating blood. I think it's referring to the shedding the blood of men. Um, but here we definitely have a pre-Levitical Old Testament natural law. Right? This, this isn't like you can't sweep this away and say Jesus fulfilled it at the cross because it's part of nature the way it's being talked about here. And what he doesn't want us to do is drink the blood. This is not a prescription against your medium rare steak. Don't go home and do that to yourself. But it is a prescription against slitting the throat of the cow, spilling the blood of the cow out, and then drinking the blood as if it's gonna give you something special, which is what pagans tend to do with blood, actually. You know, we're, we're not quite there yet where it's in the commercials, 
Um, but I guarantee you that there are groups within American society that worship Thor who go out and get some sheep blood and drink it on Friday nights with their beer. They think it's funny and cool and they're trying to find their roots, something like that. That's forbidden. That's stupid. And there's a spiritual demonic reality going on behind it, which God then doesn't want us to be part of. And so he's like, don't go to blood drinking parties, people. Okay? Right? It's not about don't eat the steak because, you know, when it tastes good, you have to cook it till it's a burnt piece of wood. He's not saying that. All right. I think that's enough on that one for now. You can get into this and argue about food a lot as Christians. Okay? So um, for now... Let's move on to, he doesn't want blood shed needlessly, right? So if you're going to kill an animal and leave it there to die and shed it, God sees that. He doesn't like that. You got to, you know, if you're just going to waste it. Um, uh, so he doesn't like it when it's done to men either. And that's, that's then what he says next. Uh, For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Now, for every beast, how is God, you know, going to punish the wolf who who harmed something, right? Uh, well, I mean, the man's going to shoot the wolf, right? That's just part of it. Is that God makes violence something that stops violence right now? Yeah, the government keeps the peace with a sword. So that's part of what's going on in this. And then under that, we are all supposed to individually realize that taking violence into my own hands is inviting violence back upon my own head. And that God himself will see to it if I do it. So the Christian position is not that there is no place in the world for violence. There is. Violence is necessary to protect order. That's why the government wields the sword. The Christian just believes that the best way to fight back against a wicked government using the sword wickedly is civil disobedience rather than direct assault. That rather than try to shed the blood of those we're trying to help, we try to help them even though they try to shed our blood. That's a radical idea. It's an idea that Jesus definitely used. It's been at the heart of Christianity. And even a pagan like Gandhi could put it to good use. So I think we can too. Uh, Recognizing then the shedding of blood is never our goal. Have you been a soldier? Are you a police officer? Can you do that? If someone comes into your neighborhood and is shooting people, can you get your AR and stop him? Yes. Yes. But your path in life is toward not shedding blood. That's your goal. That's the life you want. Yeah. And if there's any way to just disarm the reality without shedding blood, well, why wouldn't you? I've, I've told my kids, uh, and I think maybe a couple of friends this, that I have, I have two plans for the moment that I'm near an active shooter. Huh? If you imagine, what do you do? You're in a movie theater. And what happens? Uh, I have two plans for when I'm near an active shooter. One of them is to just dive at them as fast as I can and learn what little jujitsu I know to make sure the gun hits nobody else at least. And I think I might have a chance, honestly. But I'm not sure that's the one I should do, even though I've actually trained myself to be able to do that. I think it's even harder, but what I should do is I should say, have you heard of the name of Jesus Christ? Do you know who he is? As I walk toward the man. And I just keep talking about the name of Jesus Christ. I think that's an interesting plan for an active shooter event too. Both of them recognizing my goal would not be to shed his blood. And yet, like I said a moment ago, if you're the person with the ability to stop the mass murder, you stop the mass murder. 
Even if they're going to put you in jail for stopping it in the subway station in New York, did you hear? The good man going to jail. Do the right thing, people. Do the right thing. Okay. Shedding blood, though, that's not the goal. It's not the right thing. We're not after that. That's not who we are. Rather, we want mankind, verse 7, to be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth. All right. So next we get all this good stuff about the rainbow. Uh, and the rainbow being set in the clouds, which we can run a million tracks on this. Um, I had a lot of fun this week uh, getting into a little bit of, of chemistry and physics uh, just to learn more about how rainbows work in nature. There is just a glorious reality hiding beneath the surface of the rainbow. And like literally, how on earth does that happen? And when you look at how it happens, the design of the designer is like fingerprints on stuff when you get down to the lowest level of nature. It's really cool. I mentioned the word design, so let me throw this idea out here too. It's real valuable, I think. Uh, the rainbow in the story is a sign, right? It's a sign from God. It's always going to be a sign, so when God sees it, he'll remember now, we use that word sign quite a bit. Where does it come from? Why does it mean what it means? Now, signs, signs, everywhere signs. But the rainbow isn't something with words on it. Right? It's not like a stop sign. Uh, but, it, but it kind of is because you see it and it's supposed to have a significance to you. Like a stop sign is supposed to have a significance when you see it. Notice how the word sign is inside the word significance. You see that? Yeah? It's kind of cool. Um, so the rainbow is a sign, meaning a different word for it, a mark, right? Someone left an imprint of something. That's what the stop sign is. It's a mark. It has this significance, and it's been put there because someone designed that significance so you would remember. Yeah. Which then tells you there's going to be a designer behind the stop sign, and if you don't think there's a designer behind nature, um, you're not... You're not even in the majority because most evolutionists think there were aliens that did all this stuff. So, so it's so obvious that there's a design behind all of this. And now the rainbow is like that, right? It's that times a billion with Jesus at the center of the entire thing. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God never to destroy the earth again by water. And his baptism into his salvation is his bringing you through the death of water to life everlasting in the present. He's taken the water which destroys and he's made it the water of life. And the rainbow is the sign of this again and, and yet more. Uh, for the sake though of, of this morning now, uh, I want to have you turn pages in your Bible. I want you to go to another place where we're going to see the rainbow. This is like a foreshadow of where we're going in a couple of weeks. Ezekiel chapter 1. This is page 692 of your pew Bible. And, you know, to get the full effect, you really need the entire chapter wherein Ezekiel is an exile from Jerusalem, the son of a priest, before the final destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. He's in the first group that's taken away as exiles, along with probably Daniel, uh, and definitely aware of Jeremiah. Um, he's there in Babylon, which, in a sense, you know, going from Jerusalem to Babylon is a little bit like going from Rockford to Manhattan, you know, kind of like that. You know, he's there in Babylon, and he's by this river called the Kebar Canal, 
And, you know, his whole life, this guy's just the son of a priest. This has got to be pretty depressing. Their entire religion has been broken by their God, it would seem. And he has this vision. It just, he writes about it. I'm not going to read it all. We're going to look at it in a couple weeks. You wake up from this vision. I'm not sure you do much for a while. I, I think you sit there for a while. This is a mind-bending picture. Kind of like that story of the woman and the dragon a little bit ago, only that was more of a metaphor than this is. This is more of a description of reality. What Ezekiel sees is the throne room of God in heaven, fully revealed. Who else got to see this? Isaiah, John, maybe Paul, possibly Moses. Uh, but very few others, and everyone who sees this throne room of God comes away with, on the one hand, the exact same picture, on the other hand, a completely different picture. Um, there are these angels that are around the throne of God. There are four of them. They are uh, singing, holy, 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 and they have faces uh, like a lion and like a, an oryx, an ox, and like an eagle, and like a man, and they're covered with eyes, and they're burning at all times. And in Ezekiel, they each have four faces. And in Isaiah, they each have one of the different four faces. And you have modern people come along and get in arguments about the difference between the two, and what it's talking about, all this stuff. Every image of this throne room is the same throne room. And the best answer to where the Bible says either or is that it's both and. The Bible doesn't teach impossibilities. It teaches mystery. And mystery is always bigger than your mind, but it also will inspire your heart. So these dramatic angel beasts of fire, call them cherubim, call them seraphim, John calls them living creatures, which is just the word animals again. <laughs> Same one from back in Genesis. Uh, call them what you will. They're around God as a man on his throne over a giant sea. And, and as he looks up and he sees this man over a sea with these monstrous sinning creatures of fire all around, the man himself is glowing hot. Uh, and he's, it's the Son of Man, it's the pre-incarnate God. I mean, what did he look like when he was in the fiery furnace with those three guys? You know, can, can you picture it? He's there, and he's looking down at Ezekiel. He's like, look your way up at him. That's all introduction. I'm going to start reading now at uh, chapter 1, verse 26. It says, And above the expanse over their heads, that's these singing animal angel things, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Um, Hebrew doesn't talk like that. Human, human appearances, English speak for we're afraid of men and women issues. Um, like a man. He looked like a man. It's very important that we get that. He looked like a man. Uh, and upward from what he had uh, had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. Right? So he's like a man, but he's fiery and glowing. Like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, as if he's made of fire. But it's solid. Solid fire, what's that? Yeah. Uh, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him. Verse 28 like 
the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around him. Um, once upon a time, I made YouTube videos with pictures in them. I don't anymore, I just don't have time. It was a godless amount of time to make those videos, but it did a lot of good. And I would find clips and pull bits from uh, popular media into my videos and, and try to make it funny and, and all this stuff. And one of my favorite clips to reuse, I reused some. There was a cat doing SOS messages in a box and it was funny. But one of my favorite ones uh, was a clip from a Dairy Queen commercial. And this Dairy Queen commercial has this guy with a mustache dressed in a Dairy Queen uniform walking around saying, we don't just have this, we got that. And it's things like, uh, it's like, we don't just have kittens, we got ninja kittens, you know, and putting things together that, that seem kind of weird, but in pop culture, everyone at the time thought ninjas were cool, pirates too, and cats, I mean, that's what the internet's made for, right? It's pictures of cats. And so, um, one of the things he says near the end of it, he says, we don't just got rainbows. We have rainbows on fire and like fire. The rainbow catches on fire and everywhere and the ninja cats are flying by. And it's, it's all very, you know, you know, CGI. But I remember thinking, rainbow on fire. Now that's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. About three years later, I'm reading Ezekiel. Did you catch it? It's a rainbow on fire. All around Jesus. I'm going to read it again. Verse 26 to 28. Jesus is, is a living rainbow of and around fire. Uh, above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a man. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Yeah. Uh, we're going to chase the rainbow after next week's One Week on the Beast. We're coming back to Ezekiel 1. We're going to end up in Ezekiel 2. We're going to end up in Revelation playing with this. Uh, but a little bit more here uh, for this morning uh, to kind of give you some dignity uh, in the rainbow. I already kind of talked about this as a storyline, Alleluia, as Jesus Christ lives when you see the rainbow. The rainbow really is a sign of pride for Christians, not for licentiousness, but for Christians. By pride, I don't mean arrogance. I don't want any of us to be arrogant. I don't want any of us to look down at other people. But by pride, I do mean dignity. I do want you to believe that you are worth it. I do want you to believe that God Almighty made you and crafted you, designed you by hand. I do want you to believe that God thinks you're good now because that's what it means to forgive you. He forgives you, you're good now. I want you to have then that pride every time you see a rainbow because that's why God made it. No matter what anybody else does with it, that's why God made it. The dignity of life is what the rainbow is a sign of. So that's number one. Take that with you into your life to look for the rainbow as a symbol of your own. You can get into different colors and things like that. I'm not asking you to go and put their stickers on your cars, right? But I'm asking you to change your mindset and your heart regarding when they abuse you. And I want you to believe that they can't. That's how powerful God's signs are. All they can do is bring about their own destruction while you sail safely by in the ark 
of God's holy church. So let's maybe close here this morning with the payoff one more time. I've said this almost every week, but it's why we did this series. In all of the symbols that the Bible has, the Ark of Noah going through the flood of destruction is one of the most powerful for you to embrace as your identity as a Christian now in this time. Okay, So Noah and his boat are a picture of Jesus, the body, the boat, and death, the sea, and the raging flood. He lived through it. He reigns for you. You're now part of his body which means the same story he's living is becoming your, your story, which means that your body is now an ark just like his body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is filled with the word of God, and God is going to bring that word through the chaos of this age. He's going to sail you into resurrection. And this is not just about you, singular. It's about you, together. So that your body and ark is tied to a home. A box you all live in with the raging flood on the outside. And together you strive to maintain life and peace within. And again, the word of God in your midst. That's how you build that ark so it stands. It's not just your home then, right? It's your congregation. This is a ship. We're sailing through the flood. We even got, you know, hardtack. It's better than hardtack. We got, we got bread and wine. The fetus on the way. Yeah. Um, and this applies all the way up, right? This applies to your city. This applies to your county. This applies to your, your state. This applies to your government. Um, I don't know if any of you have found, some of you probably have, um, a podcast I do uh, that's not in our bulletin ever. It's called A Brief History of Power. And I interview a former seminary professor, now a pastor out in, in Denver every week, and uh, we talk about uh, the need for Lutherans specifically to remember our calling as polit political active people. And by that, I don't mean that we're doing political activism, but I mean that Lutherans aren't ashamed to say, run for Congress. There's nobody in the Missouri Synod, generally speaking, who gets there. Why is that? Why are we underrepresented? We're a small church body, but based on percentage points, we are underrepresented in the American government. We should have at least like four or five house seats. And we don't. We're not that. Why is that? I was really blessed, though, to have someone reach out to me recently from Indiana who listens to the show. He's running for Congress now. Why am I saying this now? I don't know that you need to run for Congress. You need to build your ark. You need to figure out what your ark is. Believe God put you there for that. It's his ark. Believe that everything you need for your ark will come in due time. If you think you need it, you don't. You need something else. So ask for him to show you what that is. <laughs> Pray about your ark. And then again, share your ark. Especially one as good as, as we are becoming in his name. Hallelujah. Amen.